Hello, and welcome to Talking and Show, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. Mimi Lewis is off this week, but this month our first topic is apologies. What makes a good apology? What makes a bad apology? As we approach the high holidays, how are we reflecting on the public and private apologies we want to make and to see around us? And we're so excited that for this first segment, we're going to be joined by Miriam steinberg Egith, a Jewish advice columnist here in Philadelphia. Hi, Miriam. Hi, I'm really glad to be joining you guys. Um, we are so excited to have you. And uh, Miriam is also a friend of mine whose advice I ask for frequently. So I'm excited <laughs> to have her here. Um providing advice to all of us. Um, for our second segment, we're going to be talking about Golda's Balcony, a Broadway show that is now making the rounds as a film in the Jewish Film Festival circuit. So for apologies, um, we wanted to talk about this because the high holidays are coming up. And as we start to get closer and closer to Yom Kippur, there tends to be um, a lot of focus, not just in Yom Kippur, but also just during the whole month of Elul, um, about apologizing and so I and I have been reading a book about apologies spoiler alert and so I've been thinking about this a lot and I really wanted to talk with other people about what makes a good apology and what what we're looking for in apologies so Miriam I would love to know like just start me out by telling me like what makes a bad apology how can you tell that something is a not good apology I mean, I think sort of the classic bad apology is, I'm sorry you made me do that, <laughs> or I'm sorry I did that, but uh, sort of any apology that has, you know, some sort of equivocation in it, or justification, or victim blaming, right? Like, anything where you're actually not taking responsibility for it, but making the responsibility on the other person really makes it a bad apology. If the goal of an apology is in fact to relieve some burden of a person that you have wronged, not doing that basically makes it not just a bad apology, but essentially not an apology, right? Not effective, not doing the thing it sets out to do. So Hava, what do you think? You know, what this makes me think of actually, so, um, my father is a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I grew up on on Springsteen music, and uh, my dad has been to many, many live Bruce shows in his life. I promise this is relevant. And um, I've been to a handful myself, and one of the things that you get at a live show is like Springsteen's story time, where he like tells a story from his life. And there's this one famous incident where he tells a story of a time that he got a traffic ticket and goes to court to contest it. And so when you go to traffic court, you're like sitting there listening to all the cases that come before you. I have also had this experience and people had the option of pleading not guilty, guilty or guilty with an explanation. <laughs> and he said, and, he said, and sitting, sitting there, I realized that in life, everyone is guilty with an explanation. <laughs> and I think that this is actually the kind of bad apology that I am most guilty of, which is, I'm really sorry, I was wrong. Here is the set of circumstances that made me do the wrong thing. I'm going to use this apology as an opportunity to tell you about why it totally made sense that I did that thing. 
so I think that's I'm I'm an guilty with an explanation offender um and I think that there's actually like a line between that being a bad apology and verging on what could be a good apology if you were more self-aware about it which is that it feels like there is potential to use the apology as an opportunity not just to say I'm sorry about this one instance but I am resolving to do better at the underlying thing about myself that made this happen and that what made me do this can be like the kernel of that effort but only if you're using it in like the right self-awareness way and not in a way that verges on justification. I feel like the thing about that is that like sometimes the explanation is good you know it's like one of our friends was telling us that they got pulled over on the way to the airport when their partner was in labor to give birth Mm -hmm. they were like driving on the shoulder and they got pulled over and the cop was like not understanding and was like don't do it again and they were like what again like we're trying to get to the (laughs) hospital for a very specific purpose and um yeah in that case it's like I don't know. This circumstance is kind of, I mean, maybe you just shouldn't apologize in that situation because you didn't really do something really wrong. Um, But I feel like if it's a really good explanation, then yeah, apology with an explanation or guilty with an explanation kind of makes you not guilty. No, it depends on the situation. I think one of the ways in which I see apologies going bad a lot of the time is on playgrounds where an apology is forced by a parent to a child in order to say, get out of timeout or be able to stay at the playground. And so in that case, sometimes I see the kids trying to explain themselves and saying, you know, but he hit me first or whatever the thing is. And there's this really interesting dynamic that happens where the parents say, just say you're sorry and you can go back to playing as if sorry is this kind of magical thing that, you know, it doesn't matter the explanation. It doesn't matter if you actually did it. It doesn't matter how it started. It's like you say the magic word and everything goes back to normal. And I really worry actually about what that teaches kids about conflict resolution and how they talk to each other in general and kind of autonomy and all of these sort of big picture parenting issues that come from that. But then I think about how, if that's how many people learned to apologize in that kind of forced playground setting, what it means then for adults who think they can just say a cursory, I'm sorry, and move on and not do kind of the bigger work about, like Zahava said, sort of the underlying issues that we would hope to be working on that would make that thing not happen again, right? Not in the case of your friends where it's a thing that's not going to happen again, right? Uh, But the kind of, you know, you snap at your partner or you yell at your kids or you bump into someone on the sidewalk, like things are that are probably going to happen again. That kind of cursory, oh, I'm sorry, sometimes I think can help people move on, but also gives this kind of false pretense that that one word is all you need. I don't want to make this all about like teaching kids to apologize, but I do actually think there's like a really complicated dynamics around that because sometimes it's like, you can see that your kid 
has messed up in some way, but you also like, they are not going to go through the appropriate soul searching in that moment. Like that is actually your job anyways, not their job to like teach them how to do this stuff and talk about whatever the thing is that went wrong. But like they do, they should say something to the person that they hurt and, or like there is another adult there who is expecting an I'm sorry, even if it's totally empty. So it's like, mm. I feel like I've been in situations where it's like, I've forced an apology from a, you know, two or three year old when it's like, I know she didn't understand that and it was not meaningful or whatever. But also like, I don't think it would have been good practice to like, it would have been hurtful and like problematic to the other parent to just be like, uh, my kid did a bad thing. What can you do? Like, even though like, that's kind of, there isn't that much you might be able to do in that moment. Like it's kind of a bigger picture issue. Um, or maybe like you don't think that it warrants an apology from your kid, but it's clear that the other parent does. And then it's like, well, I don't really want to like cause a problem with this parent. So it's easier to just force my kid to say, I'm sorry, than be like, they're kids. Like they don't understand this stuff yet. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I, I feel comfortable not forcing my child to say, I'm sorry, but I don't, there are situations in which it's clear that that's not the right answer to the other people around. Right. And then I'm like, Oh no. I think that raises the question though, of who the apology is for. Um, right. Because what we're talking about earlier is like what's happening on your side, right? Are you just trying to justify? Are you trying to improve? But on the other end of that conversation is somebody who might like deserve some recognition for the fact that they have been hurt Mm. regardless of what you are going to do tomorrow. Um, This actually brings me to like the main realization I had when prepping for this segment, which is I was trying to look for um, Jewish sources on apologies Um, and what kind of traditional sources. And that's because I assumed that I would find them in um, sources that discuss tshuva, right? Like repentance, because in the lead up to the high holidays, we often talk about the fact that if you've like sinned against God, like you broke Shabbat or something, then that's something that you just privately can do repentance for. But if you've sinned against another person, you have to apologize, right? That's sort of how I'd always conceptualized it. But that is not actually true. What you have to do is ask for forgiveness. And that distinction between apologizing and asking for forgiveness is not something that had ever occurred to me before, like yesterday, when I was really starting to think this through. And I realized looking in, for instance, um, Maimonides Rambam's Hilchot Tshuva, The Laws of Repentance, where this is discussed, that there's no Hebrew word there that means apology. It means like it like the the word used is um, you need lirtsoto, which is translated in is to appease or pacify him, and then to ask for forgiveness. Right, the the offended party is you need to appease them and ask for forgiveness. And when I was like googling around for articles on how to give a good apology, one of the things that I saw repeatedly is in the best apology, don't ask for forgiveness because it's not about you and what you need; it's about the other person and what they need. Mm. I've saw I saw this at least twice in things that came up. Apologies to the fact that I can't remember in what particular articles, 
but like that contrast was so interesting to me that actually the the interpersonal repentance that Judaism is asking of us is that you're trying to seek forgiveness because your repentance process is incomplete if that person doesn't forgive you or you don't make a real effort to get that person to forgive you. But that's sort of distinct from apologies, and I'm still trying to parse through what that means in practice. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's also a distinction I haven't thought a lot about, so I'm interested to learn more about that as we lead up to the holidays. Yeah. I So I've been reading this book called Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts by Harriet Lerner. Um, and she actually does talk a lot about, um, like asking someone to forgive you and that like, she doesn't seem to think that that's a bad thing. She thinks that sometimes it's useful to, to put a pin on something, um, that it's like, it kind of makes it clear what you're asking for. Like, are you like you, you're trying to say like, I want to move past this thing. And you're basically, like, asking the other person, like, do you want to do that with me? I think that is useful, but I think it is, like, like all of this, it only works if you've done everything you're supposed to do ahead of time. I mean, you can ask someone for forgiveness, but they're probably going to say no <laughs> if, you, if you haven't, like, done all of the work ahead of time. And I find that to be useful to remember, um... And also, like, one thing that she talks about in this book is how, like, there's this kind of obsession with forgiveness and how forgiveness is, like, the most important thing that we can do and give to each other. And I find that to be, like, just super weird and not reality. So here's I'm just going to read a paragraph from her book. She's talking to a colleague about forgiveness. He quotes something I had seen on Facebook earlier that day. Quote, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. Only forgiveness, he says, can free the injured party from holding on to their anger and hatred. I disagree with these well-intentioned but potentially hurtful ideas. The idea that forgiveness is the only path to a life that's not mired down in bitterness and hate. And that those who do not forgive the unapologetic offender are less spiritually evolved persons at greater risk for emotional and physical problems. Contrast these, those ideas to the work of psychologist Janice Abrams Spring, whose books provide an excellent counterpoint to the blanket cultural messages and cliches about the virtue and necessity of forgiving. Forgiveness, Spring says, is not a cheap gift. She notes that rushing to a premature and superficial peace can have its own costs. Um, and she then goes on to talk more about like what does it actually mean when people say forgiveness? Um, and I think that that's really interesting because there's like, how do you ask someone to forgive you? And then like, what do you mean by that? Like, what are you trying to get at? And, um, what she says that most people think that they're, what they think they're asking for when they ask for forgiveness is basically to like move forward from that point and to not like continue mired in whatever the issue is which is different than like forgetting and, and is often kind of phrased, she says by her, um, by her clients as like letting go or something. And I think that that makes it sound kind of simple, but it's really not. Um, it's very hard. Um, and 
I don't know. I think it's very interesting to, when you think about apologizing, think about like, what are you actually asking for? And is that realistic? What would it actually look like? Like, if you have really hurt someone in a serious way, what would it look like for them to forgive you? And like, what would be a realistic image of what your relationship would be like post forgiveness? Um, and I think that like, I have never fully broken that down into those parts before. And it was really useful for me to think about it in that way. And I also just, I really resonated with like, I think a lot of the language around forgiveness is like very much about like really puts the onus on the person who was hurt to forgive. Um, and I hate that. Like, I find that so frustrating. I just feel like I'm not going to just like let go of things. Like I actually feel like hurt is a very useful emotion and that like, if someone has hurt me, it's useful to me to not just be like, Oh, I'm going to forgive them. It's not a big deal. Like if it is a big deal for me, it's useful for me to know like that person might hurt me and I need to be careful around that person. Um, and and even if I do repair a relationship with that person, I'm going to have to like move forward kind of carrying the knowledge that there is that possibility of pain there. You know, Miriam, I feel like the kind of in the spirit of like advice columnist expertise, I feel like the kinds of things you tend to see um, are more on the order of what Tamara is talking about. People asking questions like, such and such happened and it's really impacting my relationship. How can I move forward? Um, but the, there's, there is a big difference between having the ability to like continue a relationship with that person, even if it's changed, or a notion of forgiveness that's about the relationship going back to what it was. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have a strong sense of what forgiveness means? Because um, I find myself actually kind of stymied by that sometimes. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, you know, full disclosure, I think one of the things that I find the most challenging as an advice columnist is that it's very obvious to me what the right thing is to do in many scenarios and very obvious to me also that if I were to try to follow the advice that I give to other people, it's a lot harder to follow through than it is to dish it out, essentially, right? Isn't that true about all things in life? Um, so... So I think it's really easy to say what I think is kind of the right answer in that case. When I look at my own life, it is much, much harder to say like, oh yeah, and I take my own advice to heart and I do those things really well, right? I don't think that, I don't think that what makes you a good person and what makes you a good advice columnist are the same thing. I hope that I am both. And I also recognize my shortcomings, you know, especially in this time of preparation for high holidays. I think that I'm not getting it right all the time, right? Um, so... All that being said, I think that a lot of times when people picture an apology, it is a short phrase and a short conversation, and then everyone parts ways and moves on. And I think, tomorrow you didn't explicitly ask this yet, but I think it connects with what Zahaba just said, which is what makes a good apology is not expecting it to be over quickly, right? A short statement of anything isn't going to change relationships, isn't going to change the behaviors that led to the need for the apology. And so 
you know, I think that if two people if have some rift between them and want to think about how they move forward in their relationship, it's going to be so much more effective for them to have a shared sense of where the conflict was, to have a shared understanding of what went wrong and also a shared expectation of what things would look like moving forward. Because I think also there's so often this mismatch where, you know, Zahava, if I screwed up and did something that hurt you and I say like, Zahava, I'm sorry. Like, then what, right? I mean, I think that's the real question is I had to work up some kind of courage, presumably to say that to you. But if you were not expecting the apology in that moment, how much time is reasonable to give someone? How much should I be then expecting to listen to you reflect on what you need to hear and what you expect? And again, I think the kind of scripting out of apologies is really problematic. You say like, I need you to apologize for X, which I think a particularly maybe in relationships like romantic marriages, people get into, you know, this is the very specific thing. Um, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, but any apology to be effective has to have some kind of shared understanding of what the goals are and whether a problem can be solved through words alone and how much action plays into it. So if I say I'm sorry, but I do the exact same thing tomorrow, my apology today might have been great and heartfelt and we might have had a real emotional connection about it if I'm not doing the other work and I do the same thing again tomorrow. At some point, the apology is going to be empty because nothing is changing around it. And so I think sort of like from the advice column perspective, it's really challenging to be able to say, you know, give the heartfelt apology, but don't expect it to change because it's not the other person's responsibility necessarily to forgive, right? The flip side of what we're saying. Um, and so you say like, I've apologized. What else do you want me to do? Well, the other things I want you to do are not to have this scenario happen again or change the dynamic in a way that we're going to avoid this particular pitfall that we've seen happen before in our relationship, all of those kinds of things. Um, so I think that it's really hard to talk about sort of a disembodied apology forgiveness scenario because the relationship of the people who are having the discussion is so central. Um, and so I, I think like the particulars matter so deeply. Um, if there were a formula, that would be great. I mean, I think like the, the one formula that I think that I have found to be effective is coupling an apology with a, how can I help? Um, and that I think a particularly in that kind of playground moment or walking down the street and bumping into someone, like if you bump into someone and you spill their coffee, okay, how can I help? Or if the kid in the playground knocks their friend down, okay, how can I help? And so that it's tied to action in some way and taking the apology, I think beyond words and into action is actually the only thing that makes an apology worthwhile. I like that. You know what's funny is how much of the writing about apologies seems to be about public apologies hmm. and not about interpersonal apologies. And by I say the, by when I say 
the writing about apologies. I mean, like, there are dozens of articles on the internet from everything from, like, you know, verywellfamily.com to psychology today to whatever that are, like, sort of popular dissections mm-hmm. of public apologies, of um, public figure misbehavior. And what's funny about those is that actually I think that's another thing that isn't an apology at all so much as it's like a performance of regret or contrition, right? which is different than what we're talking about where the apology is something that's aimed at restoring a relationship. Um, Especially when you talk about politician apologies, it's more about do the people out there still trust that I'm the kind of person they should like and care about and trust in whatever that they should still vote for me um so that i'm not apologizing to them but i'm trying to apologize in their hearing so that they're confident that i have like done the mensch thing here even when the underlying issue was very unmenchy and that's also a totally other species um like whose forgiveness are you really seeking because i think in a lot of those uh the listener is the third party they they may just want people to think that they're not as bad as the thing they did um but i actually think that that's pretty close to what a lot of us are doing in interpersonal apologies also and maybe the like skeptical slightly icky feeling that we often have about those public speeches of contrition can inform our own sense of how not to apologize interpersonally. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that a public apology, you know, it depends on what the person's role is. Like, obviously, like an actor's apology versus a, like, politician's apology versus, like, someone who's, like, you know, important in your, like, professional field who has turned out to have been corrupt in some way or something like that. Like, those things all kind of have, carry different weight and kind of require different things of people. But I think that the idea of, I think that we actually don't, we have been talking a lot about like personal apologies, but something that like the last few years have really taught us all, I think is that like, sometimes you've wronged a group of people and, um, and you may not know them individually. Um, and that, so like, it's very difficult to like repair a relationship with someone that you've never met. Um, and who like perhaps the very fact that you never met them in a way is what allowed you to do the bad thing that you did because you didn't ever have to think about like, Oh, but if I do this, it will really hurt Miriam. You could just be like, "Eh, I'm just going to take this money. Who will it hurt? (laughs) Um, and if you don't really put a face on it, then it allows it to be much easier for you. And I actually think that like, this is something that Judaism like does address in that, like there are communal sins and there are communal, like there are sacrifices for communal sins. Um, and the idea is basically that like, it's possible that we have sinned as a community, but it's also possible that we have sinned against the community. You know, I think about this in the ways that I think about just like institutional racism and systematic ways that systems are set up to hurt, you know, poor people um, and how there are times when I 
see myself taking advantage of those things or I feel how in, entwined I am in a system that maybe is a system that hurts people. And I don't really know what it looks like to appropriately do tshuva for that, to repent for that. And, it, and honestly, like, I don't think... I don't think there's a good answer, but I, I think that the kind of like crappy public apologies that we see so frequently are very often like a good, a good reminder that it's like super hard to apologize to like an amorphous group of people that you don't know. Even if you are contrite, it's like, you're never going to be able to like prove to them. You're never going to say the right words for a whole group of people. Um, it's actually just not possible, but you, everybody still has an instinct, I think, for often for professional reasons of just being like, I have to say something to make people think that I'm not as bad as they think I am right now. But I don't know how you actually do that. I don't, I'm not sure it's possible. No, and I think in those cases, even more so, the words are a placeholder for actions. And if there's nothing else that comes after it, then it's absolutely just PR and not chuva, right? And certainly we see that a lot in those kinds of public apologies. But when we think about our relationships, because hopefully none of us or no people really close to us are going to be in a position to have to apologize in a really public way for some terrible doing, um, but what we can learn from the things that we don't like, or even in a smaller sense, when someone apologizes to us on the interpersonal level, what we don't like about it, what we can take from that to make sure we're not doing that to other people. You know, this idea of public apologies or sort of broad apologies makes me think of, of something else that cropped up when I was, um, when I was reading Maimonides uh, um, on repentance, which is... Um, Again, something that I'd never encountered before, despite thinking that I kind of knew the repentance process, um, which is the idea of apologizing with an audience. Um, so there's a discussion of bringing a group of three friends with you when you seek someone's forgiveness. And that if the person refuses to forgive you, there's, a, there's an idea of going back up to three times to try and win their forgiveness. And... Maimonides talks about bringing three different sets of three people that might be there as an audience, which if I were to think about this in practice feels like a bad idea, like ganging up on somebody and undermining the conversation. But I think that the vibe that it's trying to convey is actually one of like abasing yourself. Like I'm here admitting that I've done something wrong in front of multiple people that I want to respect me and that there's the theme that runs through the Jewish writings that I was able to find on this seem to be, the theme seems to be like humility. Like you humble yourself in this process um, because I think a lot of just being willing to apologize at all is letting go of the pride that like, but there's a way in which I was in the right or I, you know, but what, was it really that important, this hurt that this other person sustained? Like this wasn't really a big deal and, and all of those are sort of a form of pride. And so the notion of, um, of, of making sure that like other people see that you're admitting this thing might have value. 
I feel like the the piece of that that's like that that I have been thinking about a lot is how it's it's about admitting but it's also about like opening a conversation that like if you've really hurt someone it's so unlikely that you're going to be able to like have one apology conversation and then it will be over and you will just go back to what however things were like if you've really messed up in a serious way part of apologizing is like opening a conversation and being real about like who you are and what your shortcomings were and not expecting it to be like a one and done situation um and like I think that's borne out in like our liturgy that like we have basically the entire month of Elul where we're like thinking about this and then we have like all of these prayers that we repeat so much during the 10 days of repentance, we repeat them over and over. We repeat the Ashamnu, you know, multiple times a day. Um, and it's just this idea of like, this is not going to be something where it's like, you just have to say it one time or you just have to talk about it once and it's over. Um, it's something that like, you really need to spend time on. And it like, and investing that time and being willing to like have the hard conversation about like what's going on and what led to, you know, you doing whatever the, the, the bad thing was is a way of both like, um, showing humility, but also like showing that you're invested in it, you know, and that like, whatever the apology is, is, is something that you're willing to like take time and go deep on. And then you don't consider it to be not a big deal. The flip side of that though is, and maybe this goes back to a language question, which is how I brought up at the beginning is that how easily and quickly we say the word sorry so that it becomes, you know, a reflex almost just to throw out. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Bumped into someone. I'm sorry. Right. Like about all kinds of things that the true, deep, interpersonal I'm sorry's feel like they need a different word, something with more gravitas than the way that it's so easy. And, you know, again, I think about this with kids a lot too, is that the kind of, oh, sorry, that they think is that magic, the word has been uttered, everything is fine. But that has nothing to do with kind of, contrition right um and so in some ways how to separate the word i'm sorry from what it truly means to apologize seems like it would be a good step for a lot of people in terms of having something that is more tangible and real and forward thinking than so much of the way that just that word gets used and whether people are in fact, apologizing for interrupting someone, I think is a time when it gets used a lot. Um, or I don't know, maybe I bump into people a lot that kind of just in passing, I'm sorry. Um, it feels like there's such a disconnect between what that really means. You know, the person on the street who the stranger, whatever you have an unpleasant, very brief interaction with, you're never going to go deeper than that 
very, very surface level. So in that case, is it enough? Um, and to kind of think of those dividing lines where, okay, I've apologized, we can move on now, and the, it's the right thing to move on, versus I've said the I'm sorry, or the longer apology, or the, even a whole discussion about it. Have I done enough now? You know, have I taken the full responsibility for it? And then there's that line where then it becomes about the other person's forgiveness, at which point it's really out of your hands as the apologizer. I want to add like one more wrinkle to this, which is that um, I think sometimes you shouldn't forgive people um, mm. or that like at least it is within right one's right to not forgive people for big um, for, you know for really deep, um, painful things. And I think that there's like a, especially at this time of year when we're all doing a lot of hopefully self-reflection, there is a tendency to talk about it as if like everything should be forgiven. But I think like, first of all, like certainly you have no, a person has no responsibility to forgive someone for something that they haven't asked for forgiveness for in a like way that feels sincere and thoughtful but second of all like if you have been hurt like in a real way you may not find that you can or want to forgive someone and I think that is okay and I think that like we um you know we also <laughs> the Torah has examples of this happening you know it's like the, the sin that Amalek committed against the people about against the Israelites is considered to be one that is like essentially unforgivable and not, not even that, but it's like, we have a special time of year where we're like, remember that terrible thing that happened to us. Don't forget it. And I like, <laughs> as a grudge holder, I find that <laughs> very, um, very powerful, but I, I think that it does speak to the fact that like, yeah, there are certain things that like you won't forget and you won't forgive and it's fair to like be honest with yourself about it and like examine it, like think about like why can I not forgive this and like is this on me? But I also think that like there's value in that and sometimes saying like I appreciate your apology but I'm not able to forgive you right now is a very reasonable response. I feel like Judaism makes room for that. It's funny because I think that the discussion on what you need to do as part of your repentance for a sin against another person, it's very focused on the repenter, right? But the process is, um, you know, and if after three approaches, the person still refuses to forgive you, then you know, that that is the process that you need to engage in and you can let it go, which seems like you could read it in different ways in terms of what, what's the like approval or disapproval that attaches to the other person's decision. And it's almost like that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what you as the repenter need to do. Um, but there's a recognition that not everybody's going to forgive you for everything, no matter how sincere your approach Um and it feels like there's room left for that. I, I do, 
say every night do you, i don't know if you guys say before the um the nighttime shema there's a like an additional paragraph um to forgive people who've offended or wronged you mm-hmm. today i should correct that it doesn't actually say today it's sort of global right i forgive everyone who has angered or hurt me mm-hmm. basically um and it's and i don't want anybody punished on my account instinctively i add the today Mm. to the text even though it's not there because it feels too sweeping to make sense right and it feels like at the end of a day with like petty slights and little grudges i can sort of comfortably say you know what the day is over i'm going to let go of those feelings i forgive the people that got on my nerves today whatever it is but there may be days when I'm not equipped to say that at the end of the day. And I don't want the next day's paragraph to be as blanket as all that, right? Because there are sometimes things that I, I can't just let go of um, on a daily basis like that. That seems like a very good practice. Yeah, seems like a reasonable, like, well-thought-out addition, <laughs> say, today. Miriam, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm always happy to take people's advice questions. If you have a specific instance of apology or forgiveness, uh, send them my way via the Jewish exponent. And I would be happy to answer your question. Awesome. We will put a link to uh, Miriam's columns in our show notes so that everybody can uh, get all of her advice. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. It was nice talking with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, especially on short notice. Okay. Our second segment is about the Golda's Balcony film. This is a film version of the play Golda's Balcony written by William Gibson. uh, That was a one woman show starring Tova Feldsha on Broadway in the early 2000s, but it started off Broadway. And this film version produced by David Fischelson is actually a recording of the first performance in New York off Broadway. Felcha was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Actress in a Play um, for this performance and won the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Solo Performance. So this 2019 production has been making the rounds of Jewish film festivals this year and has won a number of audience favorite awards. And we were appreciative that the production team gave us review access to this film to discuss. Uh, so um, I was glad to get um glad to get access to this because i had heard about the play when it was on broadway and did not have a chance to see it live um tamar how did you feel about this uh film production as a movie it does not really work like it's very much a filmed play and it feels like a filmed play um so that's kind of a shame the Wikipedia page for this place suggests that there was a film made of it, but I I haven't found anything else about that, so I have to do a little more research. As a movie, it's not, like, very movie-like, so that is kind of distracting. As a play, like, I think it's pretty good. I learned a lot about Golda Meir, which was interesting, a lot of things I didn't really know. But what the play... So the play... It's 
it's a one woman show and it talks like both about like her early life in Russia and then in Milwaukee and then in Denver and then in Palestine and her whole, like all of these really wild experiences that she had. And I really loved all of that. Like I just loved learning about Golda Meir, the human and the wild and crazy things she went through in her life. But it also focused a lot on um, the Yom Kippur War, and I found that part to be pretty boring (laughs) because it was hard to follow with just one person. She's just kind of like spitting names at you. It goes very quickly when she's talking about that. And, And also it's like, well, I kind of know what happened in the Yom Kippur War, so I don't feel like... Whereas, like, I don't really know what happened in Golda Meir's life. So I find myself kind of checking out at that point. I don't know. What did you think, Zahava? Well, I actually thought the anchoring of the story around the Yom Kippur War worked for me. Um, so the the film begins, basically, with her, you know, saying, I'm an old woman now, but let me bring you back. And the moment she first brings you back to is when she gets the phone call in the, in the middle of the night on Yom Kippur that, you know, invasion is coming. Um, and the film basically ends with the resolution of the Yom Kippur war. And then as she tells that story, she sort of jumps around to her life history as it relates to or informs or just sort of sheds light on the person she is in this Yom Kippur war moment. Um, It worked for me in part because if somebody said to me like, Oh, who was Golda Meir? I would probably say two things. One, she was Israel's first and only female prime minister. And two, she was prime minister during the Yom Kippur War. I think those are like the, the first things I would say about her. So to me, the organization of the movie kind of acknowledges that. Um, I also didn't know that much about the Yom Kippur War other than like, like in my head, even though this is totally false, it's like a one day war that took place on Yom Kippur. <laughs> <laughs> the Six Day War really like messed up all narratives of war. I think for like generations of like Jewish students, yeah. because it seems like one war was six days. The next war is named after a day, so of course everybody <laughs> thinks that it's just one day. Like that's actually right. a completely reasonable approach. Even though if you had asked me to like reflect on that assumption, I would have concluded that it probably was not true. <laughs> um, and also the involvement of um, of Israel's nuclear capability and the fact that um, the fact that Israel was contemplating using nuclear bombs during the Yom Kippur War and that was part of the leverage that was used to get American assistance during the war is something that I didn't know anything about and I found really interesting. But I agree that the reminiscences that aren't in the war are more vivid and important to the sense you walk away with of Golda Meir as a person. I also think Tova Felch's performance is really good here. It's a stage play performance, yeah, but it's really good. And because it's a one woman show, she, in some of her memories, is being other people as well. Like she's being the voice that person has in Golda Meir's memory. Um, and on the whole, I think she pulls that off really well. There's especially sort of like this little tour de force scene where um, 
she's a teenager in Milwaukee. Her parents are standing against her activism and also her um, wanting to marry this guy, Morris Meyerson, who doesn't have the prospects that they want for her. And they want her to sort of be a be the quiet Jewish wife of a prosperous person. Um, and just recounting all four people in that conversation, Tova Felcher does an amazing job in that moment. Um, but I agree that this is not like a movie. This is a filmed play. And to me, filmed plays kind of are the worst of all worlds in terms of being realistic because a play, okay, it's not a naturalistic presentation, but you have the immediacy of a real person. A film, you can do so much with like camera work and setting and costuming to make you feel like this is a real thing that you're seeing. And this is kind of like remote, but without that naturalistic setting. So other than giving more people access to the play than would have had it, I'm not sure what value add this f version of it has. Yeah, agreed. I um, One thing that I think like was interesting to me and I feel like kind of gets lost in a little bit of the um, discussion around this play or this film because because I guess it's a one-woman show. It's just that it reveals... I mean, I'm not positive how much of this is, like, actually true, although I assume much of it, but maybe I'm wrong. But, like, it just reveals, like, what an incredible... What an incredibly difficult life she had. I feel like the picture that I had of Golden Meir growing up was, like, kind of kindly old lady with an extremely tough interior which is like not not true but like the extremely tough interior came from like literally living through pogroms then moving to milwaukee then like taking up with radicals in denver moving away from milwaukee so she wouldn't have to be like married to an old man she didn't want to marry moving to milwaukee and like be i'm moving to denver moving with radicals like eventually she married morris and they went to palestine where they like had no money at all and four children and they were like you know often didn't have food to eat like that is just i i did not know any of that um but also it really complicates her as a feminist figure she's not like somebody who just like went through a lot of things this play also asserts that she like slept with a fair number of other political figures in Israel. Um, and that was a big surprise to me. <laughs> and I felt like, yeah, I have some questions about that. Um, and does make her into like a different, a different kind of model. I mean, obviously she was not always a grandma. So, um, <laughs> But, and also she like contemplated using a nuclear bomb and in fact was like instrumental in the building of the nuclear bomb, um, which like you don't build unless you're contemplating using. So like all of that, it was so important, but it kind of got a little bit drowned in the like drama feeling of it. <laughs> And one of the things that happens in this play, which has a lot of things that happen in it, is that it talks about how Golda Meir did not write her autobiography, which is called My Life. Um, and so, I mean, that kind of makes sense. But now I would like to perhaps read like a 
good, like, academically, like, based biography of Golda Meir that is, like, not hero worship, but is really telling me, like, what was the deal with her? Um, Because, like, maybe the most complicated relationship, I mean, definitely the most complicated relationship in this film is, or is the relationship between Golda Meir and her husband, who comes across as kind of not great, but also she definitely does not treat him very well. Um, And I'm not someone who thinks that like the relationship that we have with our partner, like explains everything about us. But I also think that like, there are certainly things you can extrapolate (laughs) from a person's close relationships. And it seems like her relationship with her partner was really complex and surprising. I don't think he comes off poorly in this. I think he comes off as somebody who's along for the ride in a way that he wasn't prepared to be someone who was going to be along for the ride. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is an upending of gender norms, right? If like, if you want to marry the 16 year old from Milwaukee, you have to be part of the generation of Zionist pioneers on kibbutz. Like, Oh, oh okay. Um, <laughs> well i'm i'm a sign painter in colorado like (laughs) what are we doing here um you know it it is it is kind of interesting to see i think that like you're saying the the i'm she even says in in the play at one point i'm not a nun or i'm no nun um the like non-saintly complicated portrayal of her as a person i think what's interesting is that like israel as a country is so young even though as a place it's very old as a country it's very young that this founding generation doesn't have the remote gauziness of even the founding fathers of the united states which is on the scale of world history also a pretty young country and that sometimes we do get that gauziness in like day school educations um and we get that kindly grandmother image or like our mental image of Ben Gurion is also like kind of Einstein, like, like wise old guy with crazy hair. Um, and that you don't have this strong sense of them as human beings. I think this play actually does a good job of that. Um, but I think also one thing that I was reflecting on watching this is how much I miss that. Um, how much I miss the founding generationness of it, um, because we're we're so close to it and yet so far today that the sense of like we descended so fast into like head shaking about the corruption of Israeli political figures, um, and which I'm not saying is unjustified so much as I'm saying like the narrative changed so quickly and we there was the sense of like fallible complicated humans doing this like intrepid pioneering thing in all its complexity and instead today what we have is people who are not intrepid pioneering people um who are sort of pulling their authority and legitimacy from eliding the nuance and complexity in the founding of Israel and sort of idealizing it. That that founding generation were idealists, but not idealizing 
what they were doing, if that makes sense. Whereas today what we have is like, I can't be an idealist. I have to be sort of a grim, hard-nosed realist. You don't understand the challenges we're going through. And the reason they're important is idealized notion of what Israel is for. It feels like a reversal of what was really valuable in the, in the like narratives of the founding generation. And I, I feel sort of the lack of that watching this by contrast. I also like, I mean, I recognize that this play was written now, like more than 15 years ago, so it can't do that. But I do, I wish the play had more to say about like the world that we live in now and like what's actually going on right now because it just feels like we have so many big problems now. Um, I wish that a piece of art that was really trying to like talk about like what really went into a leader was also grappling with like, what does that teach us now? <laughs> or like, what can we take away from this in this really intense moment that we're in? I recognize that's not really a fair criticism, but I, I don't know. I left, I finished this film and I felt kind of like, eh, who cares? Because it felt, yeah, it just like, it felt of a different time to me. I think the only part of this that has maybe more current events resonance than when it was written is the section where she talks about in pre-state Israel visiting um, the detention camp in Cyprus. Um, where she talks about uh, like post-Holocaust refugees being detained by the British in Cyprus and letting them into mandatory Palestine at a trickling pace um, and keeping others detained. And there's a really like very wrenching sequence where she talks about what's going on um, with like dying children in the camps and going from barrack to barrack and asking holocaust survivors if they will stay put and let a child and let a child go in their place instead so that they won't die during the winter not everything about this works as a sequence of drama she's um because it's a one woman show she's sort of forced to do many voices during this very crowded moment um but it's it's a very affecting nonetheless and feels more relevant than I want it to right now. Um, it would be helpful. I, th I think if you were writing that scene today, you might modify it a little bit, but that didn't stop me from feeling emotional about it. Well, it is coming to many Jewish film festivals, so it's not really a Jewish film, <laughs> but if you are intrigued by our conversation, you should check it out. Um, I would say you could maybe skip it, but maybe look for a good biography of Golda Meir because she's more interesting than I really fully understood. I'm not sure I agree that it's not really a Jewish film. Obviously, not everything that's Israeli is Jewish and vice versa. Um, well, I just meant that it's not that much a film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's definitely Jewish, not really a film. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one more thing I wanted to say, actually, about current events residents, there's this moment um, where she talks about the letdown that was the 20th century, um, <laughs> yeah. where she talks about, like, 
in the 19 teens there's this moment right like the fall of the czar and the and the russian revolution leaves us in this new moment of uh, hope for egalitarianism and self-rule and she's like this new century is so fresh like a young girl or something like that like very similar to that um and the like sudden descent that was like world wars and like the pogroms that her family experienced and you know the the difficulty of of even their immigration and etc and like the come down and the come down and the come down and what what are we left with um and it reminded me a lot of the way people are reflecting on how there was this moment of optimism in the 90s, right? This like end of history moment where, you know, are we post-World Wars? Are we post-nuclear conflict? Are we post, are we post? And the like way in which people feel like, oh no, actually the world is going to hell right now. And that was misplaced optimism to <laughs> say the least. Um, and I just felt like, I hope that like the grizzled old lady doing the one woman show in like 2103 is not like, oh, the nineties, the new century was dawning, like so fresh, like a young girl. And yet the 21st century was just like an endless pile of awful. <laughs> um, we're not very deep into the 21st century right now. Um, maybe, maybe things will look up, but that also felt familiar to me, that feeling. Fair. Yeah. Sorry to leave you guys there. <laughs> I think now is a good time for us to move on to endorsements. Zahava, what do you have to endorse? So our first segment on apologies um, had me thinking about Eva Kaur, who passed away recently. Her obituary was in the New York Times. She um, was a Holocaust survivor and a survivor of the Mengele twin studies mm. and she is also the um the centerpiece of a film called forgiving dr Mengele um for her personal mission and campaign to go out there and say that she forgives the nazis and wants to forgive dr Mengele she went to auschwitz and stood at the gates and held a ceremony in which she forgave the nazis wow. um this is something that was as you can imagine, not uncontroversial. And the film discusses how many survivors felt really angered and betrayed um, by this. And like, who are you to forgive the Nazis on behalf of anyone? And what does that even mean? And I remember watching this film in college, actually, and really struggling with it because I feel like I did not have a good working definition of forgiveness and had not really um, come to a definition other than saying, oh, it's all okay now which clearly is not what you mean if you're using the word forgive in this context. Right. Um, so I think the movie puts out some really interesting um, and challenging questions around the idea of forgiveness and obviously forgiveness in the absence of a true apology. Um, and so that's, it's really interesting. So uh, we'll share a link to both um, the film and um, Eva Kors obituary um, in the New York Times. And then in the spirit of something totally lighthearted and much smilier. So I don't know, Tamar, if you watch Jane the Virgin. 
I do, although I'm not all the way through. I'm still on the first season, I think. Okay, so the show just ended. Um, I just watched the series finale. I've seen it through. I Really fun, lighthearted show. Um, nothing to do with Judaism. However, I discovered through some post-finale Wikipedia stalking that actually not only is Petra, who's this like glamorous ice bitch character, actually a Jewish Israeli actress named Yael Groglass, but also that Raphael, who plays one of the romantic leads in the show, who's like muscular hottie dude, is also potentially halachically Jewish. His mother is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Um, <laughs> though he's actually, like, his father's Italian and the family is practicing Baha'i. So he, he actually identifies as Baha'i. But the notion that in this show about, like, you know, the down-to-earth people and then the, like, impossible, unattainable, good-looking rich people that their lives suddenly bump up against through the craziness um, for anyone who doesn't know the premise, and this is not much of a spoiler because it is the series premiere, is that um, this uh, 20-year-old Latino woman in Miami uh, gets accidentally inseminated during what is supposed to be a pap smear um, and winds up pregnant with the baby of this like rich hotelier who's married to this glamorous blonde and the two of them lives evolve in a really fun way in the show um and there's more to it than what i just said but i think it's funny that like there's the down-to-earth people and the like unattainable crazy good-looking rich people and the unattainable crazy good-looking rich people are actually the jews in the cast <laughs> um which really challenges the notion of looking jewish stereotypes that we discussed a couple of months back <laughs> so just for fun yeah um, I, I feel like that is a very specific kind of Wikipedia stalking, which is like, is this person <laughs> Jewish? <laughs> um, okay. So I also have two things to endorse. The first one is, um, a poster relating to our first, um, topic about apologies. Um, there's like a poster that I feel like made the rounds as like a Facebook image, several years ago called how to apologize. And basically it gives a, a formula for a good apology. So it says you should say, I'm sorry for this is wrong because in the future I will. And then you end with, will you forgive me? Um, which I think like, is it foolproof? No, but it is actually like, if you know you need to apologize and you feel, like, stuck, um, this is a good formula to, to, to get you going. And it is also a good formula to give to kids because it allows, it, it doesn't just say, like, you need to feel something. It's like, you need to be able to complete these three sentences. Um, and if you can't do that, then, like, you have not gotten to the point where you can actually, like, ask for forgiveness. So, all right. So that is, uh, endorsement number one and endorsement number two is actually a Twitter thread, um, by someone named Eve Tuck, whose, um, Twitter handle is Tuck Eve. 
um, and it is about facilitating Q&A sessions. This is not like explicitly a Jewish thing, but because I am very often at Jewish events where there is a Q&A session, I feel like this is an incredibly helpful thread. She talks about, um, so she is an academic. Um, I believe she's in the um, Native American and Indigenous Studies, but I'm not sure. Um, and she talks about basically like how to actually get a good Q&A session. Uh, she says one of her tweets is, people don't always bring their best selves to the Q&A. People can act out their own discomfort about the approach or the topic of the talk. We need to do better. I believe in heavily mediated Q&A sessions, which is awesome. Um, and what she does, I mean, you should read the whole thread and I will share it, but, um, she says, right after I am finished talking or all the panelists have shared their papers, I invite the audience to take five to 10 minutes to talk to each other. After 45 to 70 minutes of listening, people are bursting to talk and taking the time to turn to talk to a neighbor keeps the first question from being from a person who just felt the urgency to talk. So basically what she's saying is like, do a little bit of chavruta with the person sitting next to you. Like, like talk to the person next to you. And she says, I suggest that they use the time to peer review their questions, which is so smart. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I say that this is a time for them to share a question they are considering posing in the Q and a, and that they should a make sure it is really a question and B make sure they aren't actually trying to say that they should have given the paper. <laughs> oh, that is so key. <laughs> Um, and C, figure out if the question needs to be posed and answered in front of everyone. D, I remind the audience that the speaker has just done a lot of work, so they should figure out if their question is asking the spe speaker to do work that really the question asker should do. There's more to this thread, but I just feel like there's so much wisdom there in like how we talk in a public setting um, and really like the idea of peer reviewing your question before you ask a question like it's genius and so many events that I have been to in my life would have been so much better if this had been the approach so um I highly recommend it to to all and especially if you are running any kind of event where there might be a Q&A at the end like study this thread and see what you can do to put it into action because I think it is just truly incredible. You know, I came across this thread. I think you, did you share this thread on Facebook? I may yeah. have seen it there. Yeah. And I immediately felt mortified recalling a time when I asked this totally bumbling, unnecessary question at a conference after a talk that I would never have asked if we had gone through this process and I peer reviewed it with somebody, um, not because like it, it was just not that it was like offensive or anything, just like I wasn't contributing much to the conversation. I was asserting, Hey, this is a thing that I also know something about, which is not anything that anyone else needed to know. And that this is something that like I should have borne in mind. And it's just that I only realized halfway through my question that I didn't have anything meaningful to add. <laughs> And that is something that we could all do with less of. Yes. I was once at an academic talk where um, one of the people who spoke had his children there and his, his son at the time was like eight or nine years old. And many people asked questions after the talk, including the eight-year-old son. And the eight-year-old son asked 
far and away the best and most thoughtful question. Um, and almost everyone else there who asked a question was very clearly using their question as like an opportunity to be like, I too know a thing. Um, and the eight year old was like genuinely wondering about something and that it just makes such a difference. Like, do you actually have something that you're wondering? Yes or no? Like that is truly true, truly a shocker. I feel like, and would really stop some people in their tracks with these Q and A's. So anyways, <laughs> I will link to it. Everybody should should take note, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Zahava. It's such a joy to speak with you. And we miss you, Mimi. We hope that we will see you. You'll be back again soon. Yeah, we absolutely miss you, Mimi. But, you know, in, in the event that you do listen to this, uh, we miss you sending love and hope that we can speak off podcast soon. Yes. Um, if you all have a minute, it would be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, um, or you could always let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode, because we're always looking for help thinking of good ideas. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You can search for Jewish Public Media to find our Facebook page, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and ensure that we're able to bring you new episodes every month. Thank you, Zahava. Thanks so much, Tamar. See you next month. <laughs>